Hello, and welcome to Fandom Made Me, a podcast from Fandom Forward featuring activists, leaders, and writers discussing the pop culture that made them who they are today. I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and today I am very excited because we're in a studio and we usually aren't. And we're being fancy today because we have a very, very special guest. Actor and writer Mara Wilson is here to talk about a few of her favorite foreign teen dramas, how these shows relate to her experience of teen girlhood as a celebrity, and of course, her new memoir, Good Girls Don't. Mara Wilson, welcome to Fandom Made Me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we're able to do this. Yes. Um, we tried to do this a few weeks ago over Zoom, but Zoom was yeah. um, a little unrelenting Technical difficulties, yeah. Yes. Um, this is really exciting for me, not just because you're you, but because we have almost met several times, and I don't know yeah. if you knew that. It's so funny because we have so many different connections and yet uh, we we haven't ever officially met. Yes, yeah, so hello, it's so nice to meet you. Yeah. One of the biggest missed connections between us wound up being really funny. A few years ago, I hosted a house party in LA and I invited our friends Allie and Dave and I said, oh, you can bring Mara along if you want yeah. to. And for whatever reason, you couldn't make it and that was okay, but we did have someone famous show up. It was a famous <laughs> director and I'm not going to say who it is because... A few weeks later, I had dinner with that person in New York, Yeah, and I got to the restaurant, and I saw that she was just splayed out barefoot in the restaurant. Wow. Okay. And and in that moment, I thought two things. One, how do I get out of this situation right now? Yeah. And two, I don't know Mara Wilson at all, but I can tell you she would never have done this because <laughs> she's a good girl. <laughs> My, yeah, that's really funny. My experience with Hollywood and being sort of adjacent to celebrities in a lot of different ways has been that fame can make you do very irrational things. But on the other side, fandom can make you do irrational things too. Yeah, Fame and fandom are both things where boundaries and social norms become really unclear. And that's something that you've dealt with pretty much your entire life. And it's something yeah. you've written about quite a bit. Yeah, it's something that I definitely struggle with, I think. You know, it's 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 Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. <laughs> You're or what is it? Is it where? Um, oh, no, that's not what it is. It's like when you observe something, you change it. You know, the observer effect, I feel like it's kind of like that in, in Hollywood as well. When people are being observed, you know, they're they're going to change their behavior. There's also the idea that at whatever age you become famous, you kind of stop growing. And it's funny because I've heard people say that of trauma as well, that trauma can sort of put you into, if, if you experience a trauma young, you can kind of tend to regress to that age. And so it's strange to think of like fame as a kind of trauma or it's not really a trauma, I think, but it is like something that interrupts and changes your life. But well, yeah, I, I do think also that when you have power, you know, you feel like you can kind of get away with anything. But I don't know. But I think maybe maybe it's different for us who became famous as kids. So, I mean, this is all to say I don't think you would take your shoes off in a restaurant. But that has nothing to do with age. I think it's just you've always struck me as someone who strives to behave politely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's definitely things where I'm kind of like, like if I don't 
see why this is a rule, I'm like, well, that's a stupid rule. If I don't understand it, you know, I'm probably not going to. Like, I've walked, I've walked outside in New York City barefoot. <laughs> no, I have too. I mean, my mom, but, my mom is cringing right now. But, but um, yes, but in a restaurant, I feel like I want to, I want to respect the rules. I want to think of other people. Right. That's the thing. Some people are sort of misanthropic. I think that I'm kind of the opposite of a misanthrope. I'm not sure what the opposite of a misanthrope would be, maybe a humanist, but I've been thinking that a lot lately. I'm like, no, I I like people. I don't like what people do all the time, but I like people. I like humanity. I find them interesting. And I don't want to hurt people or uh, upset them, you know? And sometimes you kind of can't help but do that. But I, I think that, like, I would know that if I took my shoes off in a restaurant, I would just be causing more problems. <laughs> and that would make the wait staff really uncomfortable, and it would gross them out, and that would be weird. So, yeah, I think that, you know, empathizing with other people is something I do tend to do. Well, I think that that's a relief, especially when a lot of people, not even famous people, tend to believe that they are the main character of life. And I think that's yeah. how you get to taking your shoes off in a restaurant. Or Yeah, I think so. You think that just the rules don't apply to you or you, you don't think about the consequences of your actions. I have to say that there are a lot of things that I admire about you. Not just that you were in the movies of my childhood, Matilda and Mrs. Doubtfire, mm -hmm. films that were always on ABC Family, RIP. I know it's freeform, but whatever. But because I grew up kind of with you, I'm a little bit younger than you, mm -hmm. and I grew up to be a huge internet geek, and I think that you have kind of become one as well. I mean, I, I mean, I was one. Yeah, I definitely was one, especially as a teenager. I, I mean, I, I think I, I talked about. In, in Good Girls Don't, I talked about being in like a Harry Potter. I, I can't even remember what it was. I think it was like an RPG group or something on AOL. So yeah, I was definitely a t teenage dirtbag spending my life on the internet. Well, as much as I want to say, oh, Matilda was my favorite thing that you've ever done, my favorite thing that you've ever done was actually Welcome to Night Vale. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you listen to ASMR. Talk about fandoms. I'm a huge ASMR video fan. Yeah. And when I was first getting into it in you know, 2012, 2013, one of the first examples that I had that was unintentional was your character, what was it, the faceless the old faceless woman? The faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so different from everything else you've done before. But I do love that your career has sort of taken this shift from huge blockbuster Hollywood films to these really geeky voice acting projects yeah. and writing projects. And I've come to really geek out and appreciate what I think is more representative of you. But again, I don't know you. So I mean, I do think that, you know, Matilda is pretty representative of, of who I was as a kid. You know, I was a kid who who escaped through books and used that imagination wise. And I was a kid who was angry about a lot of things and kind of wanted to channel my anger into good things. And so I do think that Matilda in some ways is very representative of who I am. But I also think that, you know, I grew up knowing that I, I didn't need to be the lead singer. You know, I didn't need to be that. I was like, maybe I can be the, the quirky bassist. And I, I knew I probably wasn't going to be like A-list. And I grew up with like... Like, I was friends with people like Hilary Duff and, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of, like, the other people I knew that, like, really struck it big. Like, I, I knew those people and I was just like, yeah, I, okay, I see what they have going on and I know that, you know, we have different things. And it wasn't a I'm not like the other girls thing. It was just like they, you know, they kind of have that going on and I – I have my own things to offer and they have their own things to offer and that's fine by me. 
Well, I think that's what's so exciting about your work. I mean, I was a little nervous about doing this interview, not because you're this star. I, again, I've worked with celebrities before. For me, it's just that it all feels so personal. You know, mm-hmm. when I read a lot of memoirs, I tend to want to have a cup of coffee or a drink yeah. with the person that has written this book. But I think for you, it was like your personal story in a lot of ways really reflected my own experience yeah. growing up. So I just wanted to say thank you for your wonderful writing and, and all the work you've done throughout your career. And I was listening to the audiobook for your new memoir, Good Girls Don't, mm-hmm. and I learned a lot, not just about you. I learned that it's pronounced scribbed, not scribed. <laughs> um, that was... I had, yeah, I wasn't sure about that either because I'd seen it written down, but I'd never actually said it out loud. I also um, learned a lot about OCD, which I always thought my anxiety was garden variety, but no, there's a little bit, I, I don't really know. I'm still exploring it, but I'm pretty sure it is a form of OCD as well. But also like you, I was always striving to be the good girl when yeah. I was growing up. I feel like it's like I was I was told that, you know, the, the, the deal with anxiety is that if you have one, you kind of have multiple. It's very rare that somebody just has OCD, that j- somebody just has generalized anxiety disorder. Unfortunately, you know, they call them like OCD spectrum disorders, and it's all of these associated disorders that come along with it. So people will have OCD, but they might also have panic attacks. They might also have generalized anxiety. They might also have, you know, Tourette syndrome, trichotillomania, things like that, you know, disordered eating. They might have different kind of impulse control disorders. They might have depression. They might have PTSD. They might have all these things and they tend to kind of go together. So yeah, it's rarely just one. And I've had friends say like, oh yeah, I thought I had one, but it turns out I have a little bit of OCD as well. It's a whole buffet of, of it um, is, mental yeah. health issues. I love it. <laughs> so going back to Welcome to Night Vale, that was the first time that I really considered you a voice actor or paid mm-hmm. attention to your work as a narrator. And I have to say, I find your voice so comforting and I'm so Thank glad you. to have you here. How did you decide that this path of work, you know, voice acting, narration was the best path for you in terms of acting? Well, I did it. I've been doing it since I was a small child too. I did commercials. I think I did one for Werther's Originals. I did a couple. I mean, once I like got past my speech impediment, then I was fine. Yeah, they they had me doing commercials and things and it was something that I just really loved doing. And I noticed, like, I remember I was watching in college, uh, my boyfriend at the time, he found out that I had been on Melrose Place. And so we watched a couple episodes of Melrose Place that I was in, and there was one where I was at an airport. He was like, you filmed this at an actual airport? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, so you must have had to dub your lines after. And I was like, yeah, I did. And he was like, his jaw dropped. And he was like, you couldn't tell. You were really good at that. And I was like, oh, Thank you. And I do remember like doing the looping thing for that. And then on Matilda, I did dub a bunch of lines, but then Danny knew that I liked being in the booth. And so he had me doing voices for other characters. (laughs) Which characters? Well, the little Matilda, uh, Sarah, who played the little Matilda, I guess, I think like maybe she had a cold and some of her lines weren't coming through. So he asked if I would do her voice. And so I did her voice and there was also, there's like a kid who's being turned upside down and you hear him say, you know, she's like, next time I tell you to empty your pockets, you'll do it faster, won't you? And he goes, yes, Miss Trunchbull. And Danny had me do that kid's voice. Danny had me do a yes, Miss Trunchbull. And I just jumped up and down and lowered my voice slightly and did it. 
And so I just had fun with it, and I really loved it, and I knew from then on that that was what I wanted to do. I also grew up in Burbank, which is probably the animation capital of the Western world. So everybody I knew worked in animation or knew somebody who worked in animation. So that was something that I really wanted to do. I tried out for Toy Story but didn't get it. So I always knew that 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 was something that I really loved. And I actually went to school with the daughter of the guy who helped create uh, Batman the Animated Series. Oh, wow. So I was on, yeah, so I was on Batman Beyond um, with Will Friedle, who's a friend of mine, and that was a super fun show to work on. And after that, I was like, this is always going to be something that I want to do. And in the back of my head, I was like, even if I give up film acting, voiceover is something I really want to do. What's it like narrating your own story, your own memoirs, as opposed to embodying a character? Uh, it's easier in a lot of ways. I think I, I tend to sort of – the way that I think is like I think in words and sounds. So I already kind of know how everything should sound. So it's a little bit easier, I think. That said, it can be harder to be doing things when, you know, you have to sort of separate yourself from like a sad or upsetting thing that happened. You you write it out and then you have to kind of put yourself back into it and that can be difficult. Mm. So much of your writing is about your coming-of-age story, how it was unique and how it wasn't mm-hmm. um, in many ways. So let's talk about teen dramas, sort of like the ultimate yeah. coming-of-age so stories. I like When I was a kid, I had three teenage brothers, and from the time I was five to the time I was 14, there was always at least one teenage boy in the house. So I had this like Greek chorus of teenage boys and their friends. I think that I thought that being a teenager was like the coolest thing ever. And so my brothers would sometimes watch like the the reruns of My So-Called Life and things like that. But I really, I thought, oh my gosh, it's going to be so much fun to be a teenager. And then I got to be a teenager and it wasn't. It was, you know, I, I was I was very angry at the world and it, it was just nothing like I anticipated. And I, I think that I felt a lot of pressure and I was... Uh, it felt very strange, I think, to me, and it, it wasn't what I expected it would be. Uh, and I thought that I would have like a lot more freedom as a teenager because I saw my brothers have a lot more freedom. But, you know, I think people, especially, you know, my parents treated teenage girls much differently than they, they would treat teenage boys. Do you remember the music video for Baby One More Time? Oh, Britney yeah. Spears? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. So when I was 12 years old and starting to look at high schools, I really thought that high school was going to be like that. Yeah. I mean, I thought that high school was going to be like dazed and confused, I think, because my brothers watched that movie a lot. And so I was really scared that there would be like initiation rituals and hazing and things like that. And I didn't understand why the the older kids were nice to the kids after they hazed them. And they were like, oh, the whole point is like, if you survive this, then, you know, you're part of the group. You're part of the cool ones. I was like, that just seems so strange. And how could you be friends with people who just kicked your ass? Yeah. So I was really afraid of that. I thought that I was going to get hazed. <laughs> and and in your new book, Good Girls Don't, you talked about how Grease was one of your favorite movies. Oh, yeah. Was that Did that impact I how thought, you saw – you thought you were going to be in, in The Pink Ladies yeah, and Annie I, Zuko was going to be there? <laughs> yeah. I thought it would be – I think I thought it would be like Grease. And, you know, everybody would look like they were 35. And <laughs> – 
And we would all complain about how terrible it was, but we would secretly be like, no, actually, this is fun. You know, because that's what it seemed like in high school is it seemed like everybody hated it in like every TV show and movie, but everybody also like secretly enjoyed it, secretly had fun. That's what I thought it would be like. But but it was it was so different and so alienating. But the thing about being a teenager is that you can't see beyond the present moment. So everything is incredibly heightened. And I found that as I got older, uh, I think it was probably because my brother really liked them. One of my brothers started watching like he was always really into teen dramas and he's like a super smart guy. He's like a Harvard educated paleobotanist. And he loves like Everwood. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and yeah. RIP. Was it wait, is that the one with Treat yeah, Williams? Yeah, Treat Williams. R. Wonderful R. Treat Williams. Yeah. yeah. And and he loves like, yeah, he he loves like Everwood. And he introduced me to Gilmore Girls. And <gasps> my favorite. Yeah, mine too. And but I remember being really jealous of Rory because like she got perfect grades and I like couldn't even get straight Bs. So I was jealous of her. And I was like, how come she gets into three colleges and I'm like waitlisted at mine? I can't do another Gilmore Girls episode this season, just so you know. We Don't worry. We won't first, talk about it no, anymore. No, just, but. just as an aside, the first episode was about Gilmore Girls and disability with my friends Emily and Ellen Ladau, who are both disabled, yeah. their mother-daughter duo. And then the second one was with my friend John Cabrera, who was on Gilmore Girls for oh. five seasons. I'm actually a part of like the Gilmore oh, wait, Girls. who did he play? He played Brian, the roommate. Lance oh, roommate. yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, and, and John and I worked together on a different project, which you can listen to that episode of the podcast to learn more about this fandom app he started. But, yeah. But anyway, I don't I, worry. Yeah. We won't get too into it because I, I know that we, you know, but he was really into Gilmore Girls and we started watching more teen dramas together. And the thing is, though, that like I never was able to get into like the Gossip Girls and the, you know, the Vampire Diaries and things like that because I didn't really feel like I could relate to them in any way. And it felt weird to me to make like a soap opera for teenagers. I felt like that wasn't really what I wanted. That really wasn't my kind of thing. I felt like it's strange to do that for, for teenagers because being a teenager is so awkward and weird. They would show, you know, people doing like sex and drugs in a very sensationalistic way as opposed to what I found in other countries ones where they would show sex and drugs but there was a little bit more realism to it or there were a little bit more consequences. Mm. Okay, I will say that one of the teen dramas that I got really into which was very sensationalistic was Skins. <laughs> but Skins, I think, had a sense of humor about itself. Mm -hmm. You know, there was – it was funny and it was kind of stupid and it was never seen as aspirational mm -hmm. the way that I think a lot of the American soap opera ones kind of were. And it was heightened but it was very silly. And I know a lot of people were like, my God, the, the crazy things that they do on this show, you know, that the, the kids are just nuts. And it, it was, but I don't know, for some reason it felt, it felt grounded in not reality, but some kind of reality, if you know what I mean. And that was like a fun escapist one for me. Looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, that hasn't aged well. But at the time, that was one that I really liked. Like in college, when I was going through a rough time, I was like, yeah, let's, let's go watch Skins. And it's so strange to me now that so many like 
like big actors started out on Skins. Like Dev Patel started mm-hmm. out on Skins. Joe Dempsey, who was on Game of Thrones, and and Hannah Murray, who was also on Game of Thrones, and Nicholas Holtz and everything, and so many different actors. So that was one that I got into, but. I, I always knew it was kind of silly, but what I liked about it also is that the there were like the beautiful girls, there were the beautiful kids, but people kind of looked a little bit more normal. Yeah, I think I didn't feel like I could relate to characters that were like super rich and super beautiful, you know, on on like a heightened level. I, I didn't really feel any connection with them. I think that's why people love Dairy Girls because the girls dairy seem girls so is, real. Yeah, yeah. And they're so funny and it's just there's so much more than just like the ooh, the intrigue and the drama. Like it's yeah. very much a historical crisis of, of the troubles but yeah. um, with all of the relatable teen drama well, kind of cake. One in of between. my favorite genres is coming of age stories told in times of political or social upheaval. Like one of my favorite movies in college was this French movie called La Faute Fidèle. And it was about a girl in the 70s whose parents become these like socialist and feminist activists. And the challenges she has to make and the things like the changes she has to contend with and her trying to make sense of her her grandparents being like conservative Catholics and having money, whereas her mother is like dressing differently now and like going to these like women's meetings and and going to, you know, a women's clinic and her like asking her mom like mom, what does abortion mean? And her mom being like, you need to be quiet because we don't want to get arrested. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, that was one of my favorites, I think. And, and like Persepolis was another one that I really loved. Oh, and yeah. This Is England is another great one, I think. Really, you know, and I guess you could say Dazed and Confused is, is like that too. And that was another movie that I grew up with. So, yeah, so Dairy Girls is definitely in that category as well. But after, you know, after watching Skins, which was a guilty pleasure, let's see, I found probably after that, like, my brother and I would talk about the shows they watched, we watched, and he told me to watch this show called Dance Academy. Yeah. Now, Dance Academy is kind of soapy, but what it is is it's about a girl who goes to the National Ballet School in Australia, and it's based on the writer of the show's actual experiences. And there's a lot of like so and so, like so and so, you know, there's a lot of like silly things about crushes and such, but they also are very focused on their work and how unfair dance can be and how painful it can be and how people can have injuries that cause them to to lose things and lose, you know, the roles and things that they want and how paying attention to friends can make you fall behind in these other ways. And I went to an arts boarding school. So for me, it did feel very familiar. Yeah. So usually people come on this show and they talk about one thing, but you had three shows you wanted to talk about. So in addition to Dance Academy, there's also My Mad Fat Diary and scam. Scam. Scum. 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 You know, I watched Scum actually, but I it's been many years. So yeah. I think that that's actually the only one I've really watched. I want you to convince me why I should watch the other two shows. But um, generally knowing what I do about all three of them, mental health and the good girl trope and inner narrative and coming of age, those are all themes of, of all of those shows. Yeah. I mean, high school, middle school, high school, those are not the best times of your life for anybody, I don't think. And I think that even if you do think those are the best times of your life, you aren't understanding it. Uh, And I think that we all have such skewed perceptions of ourselves at the time that 
it's it's very hard to look back and be like, oh, you know, to look back on it honestly. And that's one reason why I love my Mad Fat Diary because so much of that is about perception. And in my Mad Fat Diary, it's it's a girl, and it is based on a, a book uh, that was actually a woman's actual diary of her teenage years, which was about being an, I'm trying to think of how she put it. She was an obese teenager who had just gotten out of a mental hospital, and she had OCD, and she had compulsions, and it was her attempting to get back to her normal life and make friends and figure out who she was. And that is something that in the show is very, very, it's very beautifully explored. And so often she is, and so often the character on the show is incredibly anxious around other boys. She's incredibly nervous. What you see actually later on is there's an episode with a girl who, you know, she thinks is like the hottest one who is, you know, who everything comes easily to. And then you see it from that girl's point of view in one episode and you realize, oh, actually, the main character is very popular and well-liked. People really like her. They think that she's funny. They like spending time with her. And the the pretty girl is like, I, I don't have enough to say. I don't have enough to offer. I don't have the personality. I don't feel like I can really do anything. And you get to see behind these things. You get to see behind other people's perspectives and you get to see what it's like. But for her, it's so much about what other people think and what other people feel of you and how that can affect your relationships with other people. I think it's like one of the most honest shows that I've seen. It also has an amazing soundtrack because it's set in the UK in the 90s. So uh, it's all the music <laughs> that I grew up listening to and loving. But it, it is very much about your perception of things and the way that you see people and then let them letting you in a little bit and you seeing how things change. And so I, I think that that's, that's, that's why I love that show. That's why I love that show because I think that it, it really is about what's real and, and the pressure that you feel from inside and from outside to, to be a certain way. And scam is sorry, scum. And scum, I think it's scum. Yeah. I don't know. I don't speak. I don't speak Norwegian. And Apologies to anybody who's Norwegian. This fish is from Norwegian. Remember uh, uh, Cinderella story? No. Oh, oh Jennifer, I never saw that. Jennifer Coolidge. I was too old for that. Jennifer. Coolidge. I was too old for that. Your friend Hillary Duff. Jennifer Coolidge is like, would you like some fish? It's from Norwegian. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So scum is. Kind of the same thing because each season of the show is centered on a different character. It's the same characters in the show, but uh, the protagonist is a different person from that group. Yeah. And and what was interesting about the show, by the way, it was produced by I think Norwegian Public Television. Yeah. Norwegia. So so the show would come out in short clips, and they were in real time. So if something was happening at seven p.m. on a Saturday night, and people were going to a party in the show the clip would be released at that time, 7 yeah. o'clock on a Saturday night, which was really I didn't really know fun. they did that. That is cool. Um, it, it's been many years since I watched this show, but it was an interesting format by which to tell these coming-of-age stories that were all yeah. so, so different. What did you love about SCOM? Well, SCOM means shame. 
So it was every character having some kind of secret shame that they had to hide. One of it was somebody kissed the wrong person. One of it was somebody was, you know, struggling with this. You know, somebody was struggling with their identity, you know. And a lot of times it would be like if there was a romantic thing, sometimes it would be like there was one character who he was he was a boy and he had a crush on another boy. Eventually, he and this boy did get together, but then he found out that that boy had issues of his own. He had, um, I think he had bipolar disorder and he had recently gone off his medication. And some of these people were saying, well, does he really like you or is he just manic? And it's about, you know, and and so it was one character trying to hide his mental health and struggling with that and going off his medication and feeling ashamed of, of that. It was another one being like, well... I like boys, but I'm pretty masculine and I, I don't feel like I'm like a lot of the other gay guys that I know. And what does that mean for how I see myself, my perception of myself, things like that. And so a lot of times it would be one person having some kind of secret shame and another person having some kind of secret shame too and them sort of finding out together. And I think that what I liked about that was it felt very real. And I think they specifically tried, they asked kids, okay, what are the things you're worried about? And the kids told them and they said, okay, well, we're going to write about those things. So a lot of the times it's people, it's, it's these characters dealing with these things and trying to figure out how to do these things, but it doesn't feel salacious. Like there are kids partying, there are kids getting drunk, there are kids having sex, but it's all done in a way that feels real. You know, it feels the way this, like this is the way that 18 year olds behave as opposed to, you know, some other shows where it's just like kids going crazy and kids, kids having these wild parties and like who goes to their school dressed like that. And it's, uh, so it, it, it was it was real. And I think that what they captured the most about being a teenager is they captured the feeling of exposure that people feel and the feeling of, of pressure. And I think that's what makes these shows so much more entertaining than a lot of, uh, you know, adult shows is that they're heightened. They're, the stakes are higher because, you know, teenagers still have, you know, the brains that basically interpret everything as the worst thing ever. They can't really see beyond the present day. So everything is heightened stakes. So intermixed with the shame and the unbearability of being perceived yeah, uh, the yeah. wrong way, the good girl trope lies in there. Ta- let's talk yeah. about that. Well, because that's, yeah, that's something that I struggled with for a very long time, and I still struggle with that, the, the idea of needing to please everybody and the idea of, of feeling that pressure to be the good girl and and you know that's why i was never like a lot of people like partied as a teen but i didn't really or if i did i did it very very cautiously very mm-hmm. carefully me too. and yeah <laughs> and and i mean i remember like like pictures of like me and my friends goofing around ended up on imdb yeah and that's that's so hard it's hard enough as a regular teenager yeah. who wants to be the good girl it's even harder when America and the world see you as the good girl because... Well, I remember, I actually remember, I can't remember if that was the thing that happened on IMDb, but somebody posted on there that they saw me at a party and I was, quote, so high. And I was like, that's really funny because I've never smoked weed before. But nobody even questioned whether or not that was real. 
everybody in the comments there, it devolved into an argument over whether or not it was okay to smoke weed <laughs> and whether or not weed should be legalized. I mean, this was like 2005, 2006. So like, of course, you know, but, but everybody just believed it. And no, I'd never touched weed, uh, you know, at that you, age. You didn't touch a single weed. I didn't touch a single weed, you know. I didn't take pot. Uh, <laughs> so so I, I had never, I'd never smoked weed. I'd never done that. And I'd never gotten high on anything. Uh, so it was, it was so funny that people were, were doing that. And, and because I had, like, I knew people who had, who were teenagers who, you know, they'd smoke, they'd shoplift, they'd, they do, you know, they, they'd engage in like this thing or that thing. But I was like, nope, I can never do that because. All eyes because, are on you. Yeah. Cause all eyes are on me. And it was funny though, because I don't think that was really true. And, and I think that's something that you see a lot in these teen dramas is you, you worry that everybody's thinking about you. But the truth is that probably not everybody is thinking about you, you know? And, and for me, it was probably sort of, they were thinking of me in a like, oh, what happened to her kind of way <laughs> instead of like a, you know, oh my God, I can't believe that she's like this kind of way. So, so I think that I don't know. I, I think that that was something that I, I really struggled with was feeling like I had to live up to this impossible standard. And honestly, that standard was probably imposed upon me by myself more than anybody else. Did any particular character or storyline from any of these shows shape the way that you view the good girl trope or the way that you approached your your new memoir? I mean, I think that it was something that I, I I saw in kind of all of these the idea of having to be perfect and like in, in Dance Academy, there are the mean girls, but one of them is mean because she is competitive and needs to get ahead in the uh, – in, in like the dance world. And so she is mean and she's undercutting to a lot of the other people there because she's extremely ambitious. Then there's another girl who's mean and just kind of wild and unpredictable and there's a difference between the two of them, you know, and and one of them says, look, I'm 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 like this because I need to get ahead. I'm trying to be disciplined. But she's, you know, incredibly hard on herself. I mean, I think that this is just something that I, I focused on all the time and I felt pressure on all the time. So I think that a lot of times watching these shows, it would kind of resonate with me. I think Jal on Skins was a character that I really related to because she was somebody who was she was very creative. She came from a musical family. She had sort of a distant relationship with her father after her mother left. And I had a similar relationship with my father after my mother died. She She's like the good girl of the group. She's like the sensible one of the group. And she ends up taking more risks and then ends up paying for them later on. And there's, you know, an irony there, I think. But that's something like I related to her a lot because I felt an immense pressure to perform a certain way and to do this. And she often, you know, she talks about how she doesn't really feel like she knows how to dress herself. She doesn't really feel like she knows how to, to you know, to look good. She she tries to, like, shrug off the good girl thing but isn't quite sure how to do that. And that's something that I definitely felt is I I don't even know how to do this. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, I think that when you grow up as the good girl, there is a little bit of an identity crisis. I mean, I kind of I'm turning 30 this yeah. year and and I'm having that crisis myself and I'm an adult. Everybody does when they yeah. turn 30 and by the way, no, 30s are better than 20s. Yeah, no, so I'm I'm excited. <laughs> I I am having a 13 going on 30 birthday party and that was, you know, when I was I think that movie came out when I was 11 years old and so that oh. was my view of what it was like to be 30. <laughs> I was yeah, no, I was like 
14 or 15 when that movie came out. So I was like, I'm too old to love this movie, but I love this movie. Yeah. You I know, think that's, Mark Ruffalo yes. as, as the, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I remember thinking like, oh, is this what it's going to be like to be 30? But, you know, it turns out that she's actually not very happy with her life. You know, she's gotten rid of a bunch of people in her life that really cared about her. She doesn't really have many close friends that she can trust. She has a boyfriend that she doesn't even like very much. She has an affair with a guy who's super sleazy. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. She she doesn't like her life. Yeah. And, and it's she's kind of sacrificed everything to be who she is, but she doesn't like it. Yeah. I didn't like Jenna, like the version of Jenna that existed in that universe. I think the thing that I liked was the Jenna that... That is 13, like the inner, yeah. like child, this person who is full of wonder and creativity and excitement. And yeah. she is so kind and she has all of those things and she brings them to being 30. I think in a lot of ways, if anyone were interviewing me on this show, I would talk about that movie and say, yeah. well, I have this media career and it's all very exciting. And I try to retain uh, my childlike sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess this is all to say that I think you are one of probably millions of good girls in this country, also eldest daughters. It's like eldest daughter syndrome. I mean, syndrome. the thing is, though, that, like, I don't want to be the good girl. Like, no, no, absolutely. You know, but it's like recovering from, yeah, you know. Well, because the whole point of that, I think, is that the the harder you try to be to be a good girl, I, I think a lot of good girls actually become very angry. And very resentful. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of us end up sort of acting out because I definitely did. And it was because there was so, there was just too much pressure. And so people wouldn't understand why I would be upset over things. And it would be like, well, I'm upset because I can't live up to my own standards. And that's really frustrating for me. And there was this idea of like, well, if I can't do anything perfectly, why the hell am I even bothering? So I think that being a good girl can lead to you trying to act out and or you trying to cut loose and it inevitably going wrong. If you feel that pressure on yourself, it goes wrong and it's not great. I feel like you see that happen in my Mad Fat Diary. You see that happen in a lot of these where people try to break loose, but you kind of can't without without hurting yourself or hurting somebody else. And I think it's probably even worse than if you don't have such strict rules and things imposed on yourself. What is the difference between being the good girl and being a good person, I guess, as you say in the end. I mean, I think the difference between being a good girl is, is you know, a good girl is something that's sort of prescribed and it's the narrative through which you see your life. It's I am this. This is what I have to be. I have to be this way. I have to live this way. And it feels very pressure, whereas being a good person is just based on how you act. You are judged by your actions, It's not, there isn't like a particular way that you are supposed to live, that you are supposed to be. It's not predetermined in a way, you know, you are, you are looser with your sense of self, I think. And I think that that's great. I think that that's more freeing as opposed to, well, I'm a good girl and good girls behave this way. Being a good person is sort of a goodness is as goodness does kind of thing. And it's basically like, well, you treat other living beings in a way that is kind, you know, that's, that's what it is. It's uh, and that I think is the difference, if that makes sense. Hmm. Well, now we're going to move on to something equally deep and meaningful. Mm-hmm. Favorite ships. Are oh, there any okay. ships in any of these shows that you really loved and that you think would convince other people to watch any of these shows? I liked Tara and Ben and Dance Academy a lot. And that is not 
the main couple, I think. I think everybody wants the main character to be with, like, the brooding boy, who, you know, is, like, talented and gorgeous, but I was never into the brooding types. I was always into the, like, fun golden retriever types. And there is a romance in My Mad Fat Diary that is adorable, and a lot of that is also about judging people at first and being like, oh, this is who this person is, and this person is, you know, oh, well, this person's an asshole because they're this or they're that, or this person's, you know, allowed and annoying, and then you get to know each other a little bit better, and it's like, oh, actually, I feel like we understand each other. We might be different, but we understand each other. So, yeah, Ray and Finn in that show, it's definitely a, a it's not an enemies to lovers thing, but it is a, like, dislike. <laughs> I, love, I love a good enemies-ish to lovers Yeah, trope. that's, that's, yeah, I like that too, I think. And um, so, yeah, that's definitely one that I really like. And there's definitely a couple in, in Scum as well that are very sweet, that are surprisingly sweet. Amazing. Well, yeah. I will watch these shows and yeah. I'll report back. I think you'll especially really like My Mad Fat Diary. It's very real. Also very funny. Yeah, I watched some clips and I loved her internal monologue, by the way. I love that she'll just kind of stop and do almost like the Lizzie McGuire thing where yeah, she it, just kind of fantasizes. And that that's what's so fun about it. It's very, it's a little sexual, but it's funny. Yeah. In the way that, in the way that grappling with teen sexuality is. It's incredibly it is. messy and it's, funny. It's messy and awkward and it's like her fantasizing about like the hot doctor at the hospital and <laughs> And yeah, it's it's fantasizing about just like any guy who comes along and how awkward it is. And and then like her mom having a midlife crisis and having to deal with that, too. And Sharon Rooney, who's in it, is absolutely fantastic. I think she's going to be in Barbie this summer and I can't oh, wait yeah. to see her in it. I'm, she's she's a very underrated actress. Are you ready for Barbenheimer summer? Yeah, well, it's funny because I feel like everybody I've been telling everybody this that comes out, you know, the week of my birthday and those really are, like, the two sides of my personality. Me too. Yeah, because – and I am, like, obsessed with Cold War history. Like, I know a lot about Oppenheimer already. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot about Feynman and all of those people who worked on on that. Like, that is something in history that I, I know a lot about. But, like, I played with Barbies definitely when I was a kid. And I used them to make up all kinds of crazy stories and all kinds of fun things. So, yeah. So I, I love that. I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely – it's like for a while I had two keys to my apartment, like, two extra keys – and one of them was shaped like a skull, and the other was bright and pink and sparkly. And I was like, yeah, these these are the two sides of my personality. So I thought about trying to see if anybody would want to see both movies with me on my birthday. <laughs> well, I mean, that's an amazing idea. I've seen yeah. a lot of different um, itineraries, you know. Yeah. Um, go see Oppenheimer first, and then brood, and then have a whiskey, and then go see Barbie, and then yeah. go dancing and do karaoke. So in your new book, you said that having a fan base is like having another set of domineering parents. How has your experience with having a fandom of your own shaped your identity as a fan? It made me less into fandom than a lot of my friends because I felt like I I knew not to put people on a pedestal. Because I had met famous people and a lot of famous people were actually kind of boring or they were just normal people. So that was something that I didn't really, you know, it didn't resonate with me as much. I never had pictures of like cute people up on my walls, you know, it it just, that just, well, I mean, that's not true. I totally had like a Legolas poster. I I mean, I, (laughs) who didn't? I did have like a Legolas poster, but I, I always knew I was like, I know that these people aren't really 
these people are just really people. And so I, I think that it made me a little bit less into it. But I was still in, I was still a fan. I, I still was in like RPGs with friends of mine. And I don't think I ever wrote fan fiction, but I definitely read it. But but I think that I personally felt weird having a fandom. I felt like it was imposter syndrome. It was something that I felt uncomfortable with and sometimes still feel a little uncomfortable with. But I do think that people are a lot more understanding these days. Mm-hmm. And they know, you know, not to put people up on a pedestal and to to like them. They, they know a little bit more. And I kind of felt like I didn't deserve it when I was young. You know, it felt a little bit embarrassing to me. And, and so especially when it was for stuff that I had done as a kid, that feels a little bit like meeting like parents' friends or like grandparents' friends. And they're like, I remember you when you were this big. <laughs> and it's like everybody in the world does that to me. Everybody in the world will be like – like one thing that people tell me all the time and I don't know what to say is they'll say, oh, you look the same as you did when you were a kid. And I'm like, well, I'm the same person. <laughs> you know, of course I do. And and I'm never sure if I should be like, thanks. Like do you mean that I look young for my age or do you just – they're just making that observation and then I'm just kind of like, okay, well, thanks. You look like an adult woman Exactly. <laughs> I know. And some people say you look nothing alike. You look, yeah. you look nothing like you – like yourself as a child. I think that I didn't feel, and sometimes I still don't feel, like it was something that I deserved. I felt very separated from the work. And I think especially when you work in film, you know, you make a movie and then it can come out, you know, a year later or more. So you, especially if there's a lot of special effects involved, you 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 kind of feel separate from it anyway. You're like, oh, I did that? Oh, yeah, I forgot that I did that. There are, you know, there are kids who did voiceover in movies and then they hit puberty and their voice is completely different by the time it comes out. So I felt separate from it, I think. And I didn't embrace it as the, you know, compliment as I, the way that I should. And it wasn't, I think, until I was an adult that I could really accept it as a compliment and I really knew what it meant to people. And then I was just like, oh my gosh, this really does mean a lot. And I was able to understand and really take it as a compliment. But for a long time... I think that I just didn't understand it. I think that I kind of couldn't grapple with the magnitude of it. Hmm. Well, our last question comes from a fan. It's actually from my mom, Barbara. <laughs> actually, she's going by Barbie now. It's oh, like really? Barbie, Barbie. She's like, call me Barbie. Well, you don't call me Barbie. You call me mom. Um, but everybody else call me Barbie. So hi, mom. My mom asks, what was it like as a child actor to adapt to all of the chaotic scenes and like what what was it like to work with Sally Field? Um the chaotic scenes, I mean, I think that for me as a child it was actually kind of easier to act because I mean, I don't think I was Meryl Streep as a child, <laughs> but I I think that it was easier for me to get into a place of emotion because I think kids are a lot more vulnerable and a lot have their emotions a lot more you know, accessible than adults do. So I didn't mind crying in front of people, whereas crying in front of people as an adult can be really embarrassing. So that I think was something that I just kind of took in stride and I just kind of took it as fun. And Sally was lovely. Sally was very sweet. She would work with me. You know, she would she would sit with me, make sure that I got my lines said the right way. And yeah, she was a total sweetheart. I was very lucky. I had a lot of really wonderful people that I got to work with. Well, that is just wonderful. Mara, is there anything else you would like to share with us before we sign off? Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, I guess if uh, if any of the people that were in my Harry Potter RPG are out there, Alaska, I'm talking to you, Alaska actress and, let's see, Henry Pop and, oh, I can't remember what your name is, but your character I think was called Juniper. Um, so many different people, you know, please uh, – 
please, you know, give me a shout out. You guys were very cool. Yeah, and I and I miss you guys. And I'll never forget the time we led a uh, an imaginary raid on the Fruit Loops factory. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> that, that sounds like exactly the kind of thing many of our followers would do. So yeah. maybe some of them are members of Fandom Forward. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. That would yeah. be nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mara Wilson, thank you so much for joining us here on Fandom Made Me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Fandom Made Me is an independent production of Fandom Forward, engineered by Brian Carton and hosted and produced by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Ty and Debbie Pressman, and of course to all of our Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>